Buddhism. Buddhism is one of the Dharmic religions. It is related to Jainism and Hinduism in much the same way that Christianity is derived from and related to Judaism. Before we begin, remember that in looking at religions, we want to look for certain common elements that almost all religions have. A founder, a symbol, sacred scripture, sacred language, sacred color, sacred space, creeds, rituals, ritual leaders, um, a concept of miracles and magic, and a, and a concept and an understanding of time itself. In this picture of the Buddha, you can see the elements of Hinduism that are imbued in the illustration. The lotus uh, throne, if you will, the, um, the mount, uh, to use the term in Hinduism for the uh, depiction of the avatars of the gods and goddesses. And also note that, that in Buddhism, like Christianity, there are um, auras or halos that, that signify enlightenment and in this particular, the enlightenment at the Bodhi tree um, that becomes known as the Buddhist tree. So what is Buddhism? You know, Buddhism is actually not really a religion by traditional um, definitions because religion is, is a, a set of beliefs about the experience with the divine. There's no deity per se in Buddhism. The Buddha himself is not a deity. He is not a god. Um, in Theravada Buddhism, there might be some elements of uh, deification, but in Mahayana um, Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism, uh, Buddha is a man. Buddha is an enlightened man, and therefore his path is achievable for all of us. Buddhism uh, is a, a way of trying to end suffering and achieve enlightenment that was first developed by a man named Prince uh, Siddhartha Gautama. And Siddhartha Gautama grew up in the northeastern part of what we would call India today. He grew up Hindu. He grew up in the warrior caste. His father was a king. As I said, he's a prince. Um, and he had this experience, which I'll talk about in a moment, that led him to enlightenment. In fact, enlightenment um, or awakened uh, in Sanskrit is Buddha or Bodhi. So you can see the origins of the term as well. As I said, he was he was born into the warrior caste. He probably lived around 600 uh, BCE. Uh, at the moment of his birth, there was a prophecy. So again, a similarity with other religions, right? There was a prophecy that that your son will either be a great military leader or a great religious leader. And because of that prophecy, it, according to legend, that said Harthur Gautama's father tried to hide him from the world so that he could come of age and be a great warrior and a great king. So ironically, though, it was that deprivation, that, that uh, hiding of Siddhartha um, in the palaces, the, the summer palace and the, and the winter palace, given that constant life of luxury that in many ways set him up for that stark experience that he had at the age of 29. And again, think of that age, 29, 30. It's the age of Moses. It's the age of um, Jesus of Nazareth. It's the age of of the prophet Muhammad, that there's something about this, this um, uh, almost midlife crisis that we would use in today's terminology, but that there's, there's a moment of epiphany that comes with a lived experience and, and that then leads you to the, to the path of enlightenment. So as I said, uh, around the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama 
left the palace, he snuck out, and he had this experience, which we call the four visions. While walking around the town, he saw four visions. He saw an elderly person, a diseased or sick person, a religious wanderer, we'll talk about that in, in a few moments, uh, and a corpse. And, and he was horrified. Imagine living a life of luxury and only seeing healthy, young, um, vital um, people. Um, and, and then, you know, instead of seeing that vitality of life, to see the other side of life, aging, sickness, um, death. And so he, he thought about it. And, and his, this was the turning point in the Buddha's life. He, he, it intrigued him. He wanted to end the, the suffering that he saw in those people. And so he, he snuck out permanently this time from the palace and, and gave up all of his wealth and joined the religious wanderers or aesthetics. Um, these are uh, nomadic, uh, almost monk-like uh, aesthetics who, who would um, wander, trying to find enlightenment um, in this time period, in this culture, using yoga, uh, body piercings, uh, things to deny the body, to, to open the mind and, and the third eye, right? And he did this for, for many years. Um, he tried aestheticism. He had no experience, no, no, um, no experience with the divine. It didn't work for him. And then one day, uh, according to legend, he heard somebody playing the guitar, uh, the sitar, um, going down the river nearby. And he heard the words of the music teacher. And it said, uh, be careful with the sitar, that if you tie it too tight, the, spring, the strings will snap. But if it is too loose, it will not play. And this became his epiphany. This is the middle way, that you don't deny your entire body like aesthetics do, but you don't uh, indulge your entire body um, like, like the seven deadly sins in Christianity, right? Gluttony. That there is a middle way between these extremes. And, and he, he decided at that moment to sit down where he was, underneath the Bodhi tree. And he sat there and he refused to move until he had understood how to end suffering, um, samsara, um, um, moksha, how to, how to find enlightenment. He vowed not to rise until he did so. And he did so. And, and here's one of the most beautiful things in Buddhism is that we have, we know where that tree was. And we have descendants of that tree still growing in the, in the place where the Buddha achieved enlightenment. He spent the rest of, of his life uh, preaching to anyone who would listen. And, and um, his sayings are, are held together in, in sacred text and scripture called sutras. So the, the symbols in, in Buddhism, um, there, there's this eight-spoked Dharma wheel. So you might see Dharma wheels that have different numbers of, of spokes. But if there are eight spokes, you know it's a Buddhist Dharma wheel. We'll talk about why in a moment. But there's all kinds of symbols that are used, again, borrowed from Hinduism, like I mentioned, the lotus as well. But uh, so you, you have, um, you could also have a picture of somebody meditating. You could have the umbrella. You could, uh, you could have the conch shell. Uh, you could have, as I said, the lotus or the Dharma wheel. These are all symbols of Buddhism. In fact, there's a really interesting one that, that crosses over. It's, it's a dharmic symbol. Um, and it's, the, it's that ahimsa sign, that hand, right, that, the, of nonviolence. And if you know anything about um, Arab or Muslim culture, 
that there is a, a, a symbol in both Arab culture and in Islam called Hamsa, which is a it's a um, a calligraphied kind of hand with with a third eye, which is also supposed to ward off evil, ward off the devil. Um, Christian Arabs use it as well. It's part of the Coptic um, and sometimes the the Eastern Orthodox tradition. So this this um, cultural diffusion of symbols of, of prayer beads of, of the symbol of the hand and so forth. Um, it's really well. Buddhism is older than Christianity. So let's let's talk about Buddhism and why it started in the Indian subcontinent, as I said, um, and it spread. You know it. it Cultural diffusion. It spread into the into the Himalayas, east into what we would call Indochina today. Um, but at one point, uh, Ashoka, the great um, Mora emperor, he converted to Buddhism, and so the entire empire uh, was encouraged to practice Buddhism. And think about um, at this time, the Indian empires uh, stretched up into Afghanistan near the the Silk Routes, right? So then those traders um, going east and west along those routes would be exposed to Buddhism. And that's where we think that things like prayer beads, and I'm going to talk about a scripture line in a moment, um, would have spread west to the Southwest Asia, to the Middle East, and and become part of a scene Jewish um, culture, and ultimately Christian culture and Muslim culture as well. Uh, those sacred scriptures, uh, as I said, are, are called sutras. They, there's not a definitive one, like there is... Um, like the Pentateuch, it would be the five definitive books of Judaism, um, or the four Gospels are the definitive works of Christianity. There's no definitive works. There's, there's the Laughing Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, the Diamond Sutra. I'm going to specifically talk about the, the Sufan Sutra in a moment. Um, these are written originally in Sanskrit because they come out of the Indian subcontinent, but then are translated into uh, Tibetan, into um, Han Chinese, and into the languages of Indochina as it spreads around uh, the region. So I mentioned uh, cultural diffusion. I said I was going to talk about a particular piece of scripture. One of the Buddhist teachings that was held on a hill, according to tradition, is called the, the uh, Sephon Spetta Sutra. And one of the lines in there is, um, to be long-suffering and meek, to association with the tranquil, religious talk at due seasons, this is a great blessing. Now, if you are familiar with uh, the Christian tradition, think about the Beatitudes, told on a mount, right? Um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That these ideas spread across the region along the Silk Roots and inspired the Essenes in the Jewish communities and ultimately, therefore, Jesus of Nazareth and the Christian scriptures as well. In terms of sacred colors, you'll, like Hinduism, you'll notice that there's a lot of saffron, red, um, oranges in, in the sacred colors in the, of the monks, of the temples and stuff like that. Um, Orange and red are considered to be almost like shamanistic wards that ward off evil. But the, the Buddhists use all their culture, cultures, um, colors as well. Uh, and, and each one of the cultural colors re represents or refers to a particular aspect um, or incarnation of the Buddha. So the, you'll see some uh, blues, whites, um, like I said, red, uh, but also greens and and, uh, and yellows too. I, I would say yellow would be... Mm, the third or fourth most common after that saffronish um, uh, orange and red. 
and they, there's a, there's emotions and, and kind of chakras and, and um, human human um, chakra points that are all um, intertwined with these colors. So um, that's why um, the Buddhist monks are often wearing orange or red, and that and um, in terms of sacred space where you see the monks, you'll see there are um, there are wandering monks, but there are also monks that live in temples. A lot of the the sacred space depends on which of the Buddhist traditions that in the Indian subcontinent, you're probably more likely to see aesthetic wandering um, Buddhist monks. But in, in Tibet and in Lhasa, the great holy city, or in um, parts of Japan, where, where it becomes known as Zen, um, what I guess what I'm getting at is, is that sacred space adapts itself or, or Buddhism adapts itself to the host culture. So you, the sacred space is different in, in different um, cultural or, or nation state regions. Um, in those uh, monasteries, you'll see collections of monks um, and it's a beautiful experience to, to be able to visually uh, to see that, but also uh, the, the chants, that Om, right? What we talked about in, when we discussed Hinduism, that universal chant of Om. Um, so when we look at how Buddhism spreads, we there's three or four branches of Buddhism that we talk about. The two major divisions are Theravada, um, the lesser vehicle, uh, and the path of the elders, or Mahayana, the greater vehicle. Mahayana then becomes Chen in China, and then Zen in Japan. So those are two major divisions. Um, one of the other uh, most um, famous divisions is Tibetan Buddhism, which is Mahayana, but also um, shamanism and local Tibetan um, traditions. And, and just think about Lhasa the, the, in Tibet, at the top of the world, right, the roof of the world, and how much wind there is. And so, again, religions that uh, they are, they're constantly adapting and evolving to the people and, and the geography, right? So um, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are wind chimes that um, that you can say a prayer by writing a prayer on a flag, and that flag being flapped in the wind is a prayer. It is a recitation of that prayer. There are, are prayer wheels, prayer cycles, prayer circles. Like it, it, it it's become it's it's been absorbed into the Tibetan um, geography of of the mountains and and the the wind, the wind, the beautiful wind that carries the prayers and those chants. Um, the Dalai Lama is the 14th incarnation of, of the Dalai Lama. His name is Tianzin Gyatso. Um, and, and so that is an aspect of, of Buddhism specific to, um, to Tibetan Buddhism. That, that in Buddhism, they, they do believe in reincarnation and that enlightened people um, can choose, bodhisattvas can choose to not uh, enter nirvana and stop the cycle. They can choose to stay with us as teachers and guides. Um, and so as Buddhism has spread all over East Asia, South Asia, um, in terms of architecture and sacred space, they've adapted as well. So you might see um, Buddhist temples that have Jain symbols uh, on, on top of them. Um, for example, there's a very famous temple in Korea that has what, what a Westerner might think is a giant swastika on it. But it is, again, a Jain Dharmic symbol of meditation. Okay, um, And in, in China, where Buddhism becomes known as Chen, you're off, you'll see 
a you'll, you here's an interesting thing to, uh, if you have any trouble differentiating architecture between china and japan think about this that japan is an island and archipelago right so they have less land they build more vertically and so if you see a, a um an east asian temple and it's and it's wide um it's more likely to be uh, buddhist in this case chen and if you see a, a japanese pagoda that's vertical again think less land space more likely to be a zen or japanese um, shrine structure in buddhism um, unlike jainism and and hinduism that all of a sudden we're, we're emerging where it's again it's a later religion right the, um, what emerges is these more doctrinal um like elements of terms of, they, they talk about the three marks of existence, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, and the three jewels. So let's talk about these. The, the three marks of existence are the suppositions, if you will. The first supposition is uh, that there is no self, okay? Uh, the second supposition is that that life is constantly change, um, that there is no difference between the flowing and the river, and the river and the flowing. It is all one, it's all constant change. And then finally, the most important part, uh, tenet of Buddhism is that that suffering um, is, is unavoidable, that they, life itself, existence, is a form of suffering. Think, here's, here's an interesting thought. Think about the, the greatest present you ever got, or the, one of the greatest experiences you ever got. Um, at some point it ended. Think about if you fell in love, but then at some point maybe the relationship ended. Maybe it didn't end. Maybe you were in love with somebody for decades, a long, long marriage, but then the person dies. All positive things carry in them inherently in the human experience, uh, suffering. And that's what the Buddha was trying to get at, is to, how do we end suffering? So if all life is suffering, but and now I'm gonna talk about the Four Noble Truths, so that the first truth, and they, you have to take them in order. The first truth is that all life is suffering. Suffering is caused by greed and desire, okay? So desire can, there's positive desire, right? Like love, infatuation, affection. Um, so, so all of this is tied to suffering, though, because ultimately that, that pleasure will end. Here's where the Buddha um, starts teaching. He says, but it can be diminished. That, that there is a way, and if you follow the Eightfold Path, then that's the way to break suffering. And so that's the reason that there are eight spokes in a Buddhist Dharma wheel. It, it represents the eightfold path that if you have the right views, the right intentions, right language, meaning think about thou shalt not lie or um, um, right conduct, right livelihood. Like why would you take a job which had negative um, experiences with either people or animals, right? That, that choose a career that is the right livelihood um, if you have the right effort the right mindfulness and if you meditate right that these are the eightfold uh, paths that can lead us to enlightenment and, and the ending of suffering there's also it's not as important in buddhism but it's worth pointing out because of the similarities to the ten commandments there's this um concept also called the the, the five precepts do not kill sound familiar do not steal hmm. That sounds familiar. Do not engage in sexual misconduct. Also familiar, Leviticus, think about that. And, um, and uh, do not commit adultery. Um, four, do not use false speech. Also part of the Eightfold Path, but it's also, again, thou shalt not lie. 
right? And um, fifth, do not take intoxicants, meaning um, things that would negatively alter your state of consciousness. So the, the Buddhists generally don't drink alcohol, although in some uh, elements, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, there might be tantric use of alcohol and tantric use of, of sexual activity for the goal of achieving enlightenment. That, that the in Buddhism, they say, I, this is how you convert to Buddhism. You, you, you recite the three jewels. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. That the Buddha himself, the wheel and the laws and the Sangha, the Buddhist community, these are the three jewels of Buddhism. Uh, they, in Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism does have understandings and relationships with, um, with magic or miracles. Mahayana is really more internal. It's about the personal miracle of enlightenment. Um, and, and Buddhists would tell you that if you search for yourself again, remember, ultimately you'll realize there is no self. And that's part of the path of enlightenment. And, and Buddha, very similar to the prophet Muhammad and the prophet uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Buddha and Muhammad, neither one left a successor. And so there were splits in their traditions. And then Jesus and Buddha both had um, a unique uh, birth and prophecy sequence. They had that aesthetic phase um, that they went through, a dark night of soul, which the prophet Muhammad had as well, nonviolent, um, anti-materialistic, and again, that cultural diffusion, the fact that literally the Suvanspita um, Sutra finds its way into the Christian scriptures in the Beatitudes, right? And so Christianity and, and, and Buddhism have been spreading around the world, they're transcending their natural or original regional traditions. Christianity started in uh, Israel, Palestine, and is now uh, more common outside of that region. Buddhism started in India, is now more common and popular in other regions around the world. So this is the introduction to Buddhism. I hope it was enlightening.